You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Fox. So the same Thanks for downloading another episode of the Christian Humanist Podcast. My name is Nathan Gilmore, and I'm an uh, associate professor, soon to be professor, at uh, Emmanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. I'm also on spring break, which is why my mouth isn't working this afternoon. I'm uh, joined here online by hopefully a couple people more articulate than myself. One of them is Dr. Michael Farmer. He's an associate, no, he's an assistant professor at Crown College in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota. Uh, Michael, uh, is your uh, brain turning at the right speed? Uh, mostly, yeah. <laughs> oh, man. I'm also joined online by uh, Dr. David Grubbs. He's an assistant professor at Houston Baptist University. David, how are things there? Oh, things here are well. Good, good, good. Uh, well, Michael, you have a Before They Were Live episode coming up, don't you? Yeah, The Jungle Book. And I do, as as we discussed last week, I do indeed give my theory of Baloo as wannabe hipster. <laughs> very good, very good. Uh, we've also got a sectarian review episode, this time for real. They're doing socialism theology. I jumped the gun last week. Uh, some things got moved around on the calendar. Um, the 100th episode of the Christian Feminist Podcast is going live. Uh, do either of you know what Monstrous Regiment refers to? All I know is those two words on the calendar. Monstrous Regiment of Women, maybe? There's a, there's a famous, infamous uh, article by John Knox called The Monstrous Regiment. It's about women in leadership roles. Katie, ho- Katie hosted this one, so I can answer the question. Uh, this is actually about one of Terry Pratchett's Discworld novels. Oh, bummer. It takes its title from the John Knox piece. Um, it that that is that's the illusion being made in the title, um, and the the novel is uh, a war story um, about a a unit of soldiers um, who uh, include undercover women. Um, Katie's on it. Um, Ilya. Uh, Ilya Grubbs is is on the episode and Jay Eldred, so yeah, very good. Very um, I good. am disappointed though. I would I would really like to hear them talk about the John Knox essay. I um when we first got married, Victoria and I watched a documentary about some sort of anti-feminist dealy, uh, and it was called Monstrous Regiment. And uh, afterwards, we were first married, so I was you know even more interested in bugging her than I am now. And I went over to the piano and wrote this song. I called the monstrous regiment blues. I don't remember how it goes, except that it had the line. Uh, she wants me out of her uterus and into government schools. <laughs> nice, nice. That's awesome. Well, I think Jay Eldred does actually tee up some background on, on that essay. So you may not be entirely disappointed, Michael. Exciting stuff. 
we've also got a Book of Nature episode coming out on comets. Uh, so listeners, if you're keeping count there at home, uh, we're up to five episodes this week. And there's a sixth coming uh, because there's a Christian Humanist Profiles uh, interview with Margaret Feinberg. Do you, either of you conduct that one? No. That wasn't me. Who, who did conduct it? Well, I mean, there's a lot of us on the network that do interviews, so uh, I hope I didn't conduct it and completely forgot it. But uh, <laughs> at any rate, <laughs> the point I'm trying to make is this is a six-episode week. Uh, so if you're a fan of the Christian Humanist Radio Network, this is good stuff. Uh, and, you know, if you think that there's a certain limit of how much Christian Humanist Radio Network you can have in a week, uh, then pick and choose and quit complaining. Uh, but here on the Christian Humanist <laughs> Podcast, uh, we are going back to Richard Weaver. Uh, we're going to be talking about an essay called Education and the Individual. Uh, and Michael, we did a trio of episodes on Richard Weaver several years ago. Uh, but I reckon our listeners who don't have perfect recall might find some background useful. So what are some relevant trends in American letters and education here in the mid-20th century that might uh, come into contact with this essay? Sure. Um, there's a general push against the humanities that starts happening right after World War II, which is kind of weird because the period right after World War II is also in some ways a golden age of the humanities in the United States. So you get this increase in English departments and all sorts of stuff. But culturally speaking, there's a push against the humanities. And I think the reason for that is that the, the sciences were really important for winning World War II. And you combine that with some new technological developments, especially as concerning consumer capitalism, and all of a sudden English history, philosophy, things like that start to seem irrelevant. And also they get uh, tightly connected in the popular imagination with socialism, which is the, as we will see, the big bad of the 1950s. So that's part of it. Another part of it is American affluence has resulted in an increased desire for secondary and post-secondary education. So the number of American universities triples between 1950 and 1970. Were either of your schools created during that period? Uh, Emmanuel College, I think, became a four-year four-year college during that period, yeah. And it would be uh, that Houston, HBU was, uh, was founded within that window. Yeah. So, yeah. And a lot of schools where Crown actually goes back all the way to 1916, believe it or not. Uh, so you, you have this, this huge increase in the number of American universities. Uh, you have way more students finishing high school. We forget that before the 1950s and 60s, it was relatively uncommon for someone to go to college and not at all uncommon for someone not to finish high school. So education moves from being something that is for the privileged few to being something for everyone. And when that happens, you get a certain loosening of standards. And, and Weaver actually mentioned that in the first paragraph of the essay. He says, as the educational plants become larger and more finely appointed, what goes on in them becomes more diluted, less serious, less effective in training mind and character. So that's what he's complaining about. Education is spreading around. And, and, a, night, and a, a positive way to think about that is more people are being educated. A less positive way to think about it is uh, the education they're getting is probably not as good as it once was. Right. I'm, I'm reminded, Michael, of, uh, and Coyle Neal and Jordan Poss are going to kick my butt for not remembering this quote more precisely, but uh, Russell Kirk referring to Michigan State as the gargantuan school. That's amazing. Uh, 
Another thing that's happening is that educational theory is becoming increasingly influenced by the social sciences and especially by psychology. Uh, this is another trend you see Weaver openly worrying about in this essay. There is a big push in the 1950s for traditionalist education, so a return to classical modes of education. That has somewhat died down by the time of Weaver's death in 1963. And of course, because Weaver is a, is a loud voice in that push, his death quiets it even more. That would pump up again in the 1980s and 90s, which is where I think you get the creation of Christian classical schools and things like that. And finally, the last thing that's happening in terms of ed theory is the progressive education movement, which is very influenced by the American pragmatist philosopher John Dewey. So this movement would emphasize like a child-centered education, uh, scientific realist education. And when I say scientific realist, really what we're talking about is materialist. You know, we talked years and years and years ago about how that term realism is incredibly freighted. Well, when I'm using it here, I mean scientific realist materialist education, uh, a kind of social reconstruction, and then overall a pragmatic approach to education, which is a large part of what Weaver is taking issue with here in, in this move to pragmatic education under the under the, in his eyes, noxious influence of John Dewey. Have I left out anything essential? Well, one thing, and, I, and I'll bounce this off of you guys. I mean, if you if you don't have the background for it, that's fine. But I've, I feel like I've read some places that the GI Bill uh, has a lot to do with this as well. That, you know, in uh, the decades, and really, you know, first two decades after World War II, uh, you get this giant, you know, increase in... Uh, post-secondary education and you also have a a pretty grand increase in the english major even though as you said michael there's also a a counterforce a great suspicion of english departments because you know that's uh that's where the the socialists are hiding yes that's I mean, a, that's if, absolutely right so the gi the gi bill does send a lot of people to college but i i would say that's that's part of the picture with people going to college and the other part is that a lot more people are finishing high school because there's a big cultural move to finish high school, because maybe because you don't have to stay home and work on the farm. I'm, you know, I'm not a historian of education, so I'm not sure why exactly people weren't finishing high school um, at the rates we would expect before the 50s. But yeah, the GI Bill is a huge thing and and builds up the English department as we know it, builds up the college as we know it. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. And the other thing, Michael, and, and again, I'm just bouncing this off of you because you're our scholar of, 20th century America, I mean, to what extent was the Cold War a factor in this, you know, push towards the sciences? Yeah, I, I think I think it's a big part. And you and you see Weaver complaining, too, about how uh, our American, the products of our American educational system are not really capable of measuring up to European scientists. And, and we, we know that to be at least partially true because so many of the major American, quote unquote, American post-war scientists are actually just borrowed from Nazi Germany. Yeah, Heisenberg and uh, von Braun, von Braun. I don't speak German. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I do. I do think that's part of it, that, that science is going to be the way we win this Cold War. Uh, and but you also have a, a concomitant push toward the humanities in certain circles that 
it's it's by understanding what the West really is that we're going to be able to fight against communism. And I think Weaver fairly clearly belongs to that tradition. David, anything you want to add? I'm just wondering too. the The GI Bill is a, a lot. A lot more people are going to college. Yeah, but also, and this is you know, I haven't read any kind of stats on this, but. It just it seems to me incredibly likely that with the GI Bill, people are suddenly going to college who were never who before would not have been of the class of people who go to college, and therefore would not have necessarily gone to the schools before college that the tip, the people who typically went to college went to, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes good sense, and I mean I know that in the history of composition uh, education. Uh, this is one of the periods that, you know, is revolutionary for composition, right? I mean, this is where the uh, process movement really picks up in composition. This is where people really start to question the gatekeeper function of freshman composition and start to think of it as, you know, something that is more democratic in scope. Yep, and, and so, you can trace right. that back to Dewey too, right? That child-centered education suggests that our job is not to bar the gate against people who don't have the talent or the work ethic to get through. It's to teach to who we have and to do it on the terms that most benefit them, which is why it's, right. it's kind of weird to see Weaver take that tack at the end of the essay. Oh, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. 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 I mean, though, go ahead, David. If, if you're, if you're, if you're seeing a whole population of people coming into college who were not, already educated in a way that had led them to enjoy and value things like um, the classics, the cla you know classical languages or uh, th things things of that nature. Um, then you've, you've got you've got a whole bunch of people who just won a war and you have to justify to them why they need to care about Sophocles. And, you know, I, I, I'm wondering if, it, if, if some of this is, is, is really kind of a recognition that how, how do you make the argument for the practical use of things to people who were not educated from the beginning in valuing particular kinds of subjects and who already through life have, have acquired a very a very practical and bottom line turn of mind. Um, soldiers have a lot of motivation to be interested in what is maximally effective for getting you home and, and winning. Then isn't it weird that so many of them major in English when they get to college? I think English at that point was seen as a good all around major because the, the hyper specialization of the practical fields hadn't really kicked in in colleges. That makes sense. And also, I mean, you know, there is a, a place for uh, literary conversation in the military. I'm, I'll, I'll refer readers, and I don't know the episode number, but to uh, Sectarian Review, where Neil Gusman talks about reading Dante uh, in Iraq uh, that, you know, really kind of challenges uh, some of my, you know, preconceptions, to be sure. Well, and many of yeah. my best students have been veterans. So I... I I, you know, I, I hope it goes without saying that we're not, we're not saying that 
uh, people who were in the military make bad students or anything like that. In fact, I oh certainly not. I, I would say I would say I would trade uh, most of my freshman level classes for a freshman level class from 1949 any day of the week. <laughs> yeah. Very good. Very good. Well, David Weaver leads with an argument that any liberal notion of education must reckon with an extra material mind and an awareness of the human being as a symbol-using animal, which is a phrase that he borrows from Kenneth Burke. So what makes symbols and what makes the mind so central to Weaver's account of education? Well, it's symbols that let us uh, communicate abstracts. Uh, it's also symbols that permit us to communicate without making, uh, in some way, the ideas that we're uh, that we're wanting to um, present to someone else um, literal. Uh, he says, uh, if if a man wishes to indicate six, he uses the symbol, and he has the numeral six. He doesn't have to lay out six objects in order to make his meaning clear. Um, and that the uh, symbols as a as a tool for for communication for analysis, um, he he sees it as well and in, inarguably, in um, uh, of course symbols are the thing that gives you know humanity the enormous edge that it has. Um, uh, but if the turn of the educational mindset is toward the material and away from the abstract, um, if it is towards the immediate and away from uh, the holistic, then those disciplines that depend more heavily or even completely on symbols, like um, mathematics, especially the higher maths, um, though those things become perhaps uh, less accessible and less practical and relevant. Um, so he he's he's very invested in in showing symbols as as important things to defend because he sees the the symbol as as a big part of what is what is being dismissed. Um, and that that's the thing in you know that that's what we have our edge in. Um, he says it's it is impossible to realize how poor our lives would be without the intellectual and emotional creations which depend upon the symbolic activity, and that's the other side of it too. It's not just um, things like mathematics or philosophy or whatever. It's also the abilities to express feelings um, and inner states of consciousness and experience. Um, that you can't really display to other people outside of the the incredibly broad and crude instrument of facial expressions. Um, it's self-symbolic in some ways. Yes, but not always universally self-symbolic. Um, you know, and and one person's uh, one person's vacant stare while they're while they're thinking is another person's, um, you know, gaze of deadly rejection. 
um, you know, all, all the all the misunderstandings of faces. Had we not words to <laughs> to clarify, um, you know, there's certainly been times when I misread what was going on in someone else's face and was glad that we have words to fall back on, though I would not necessarily have said it in exactly that way. But Weaver Weaver invites us for a few few paragraphs to imagine what it would be like if we just didn't have symbols and well, we wouldn't have much of anything that's recognizably human. Yeah, and this this section, David, I'll, I'll confess, struck me as weird because, you know, if you're talking about a society that has started to overvalue, in Weaver's estimation, the hard sciences, it seems like there are a few things that are more symbol-heavy than chemistry and physics. Yeah, and he, he says that progressive education's turning its back on mathematics, which... You know, maybe that was true in 1965 when this was published, after his death, weirdly. Um, but it, it just can't be true now, right? That's what the M in STEM stands for. Right, right, right. And the S stands for science. Is it is it just because math, he, what, what he's concerned at the loss of is non-practical mathematics, like theoretical mathematics? Well, like I said, I mean, that's why I found this passage weird, because, you know, I mean, if you take it on its own, you can see it as, you know, a, a lament about the lack of rigor. But then if you, you know, put that in the context of, you know, emphasizing the sciences over the humanities, it seems like this is a a misplaced lament. Well, it's entirely possible that there were that there were folks who misunderstood the role of mathematics in the sciences and so were were pushing for things that would that would that would be self-contradictory in the way that y'all are pointing out but without that kind of um that kind of awareness i mean i remember when i was much younger thinking that scientists just sort of made inventions that did cool things (laughs) <laughs> and have those uh, electric arcs jumping up between two poles. Yes, yes, exactly. And if, if, if that's your notion of, ah, the science is practical, hard-edged, real, um, you know, to then have a scientist sit down and say, here's my equations that lead me to think this particular experiment is going to be one worth doing, um, to the popular mind, uh, that whose notions of sciences were of the sciences were all in the deployment of science within technology um that the 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 connection between the two might seem um not not as direct how do you get from this to that um like so many so many people today who use all of the all of the goods of computing technology, but have no notion of what the code that lies under all the tools they use looks like, and what it and what it would involve to think in terms of that code. And maybe that's what he's getting at, David, because I know it's been a phenomenon in the you know twenty some years that I've been part of higher ed that you have a much bigger portion of your student body majoring in the sciences as freshmen than as seniors. You know, maybe he's getting at the, you know, uh, everyone has aspirations that they're going to be scientists and physicians and whatnot, but then they don't have the discipline to actually do the math, so to speak. Yeah. 
something like that. It might also be helpful if we stop making the distinction between sciences and humanities, and I know I'm the one who introduced that, and uh, start talking about the liberal arts instead, because mathematics is one of the liberal arts. Oh, sure, sure. So I, I really think practicality might be what we're getting at here. Yeah. Yeah, I think that makes some sense. That makes that, what he wants that is the theoretical, sense. although then he praises history, which to me isn't theoretical at all. It's It's deeply practical. Well, but also deeply theoretical you only have a notion of a long a long view or a large view of history if you've done at least some uh, some unwitting theoretical work yeah but i mean un, if we're talking if unwitting theoretical work counts then everything counts i mean computer programming relies on unwitting theor- theoretical work well i th- i think Maybe that's what he's getting at is that all is that every endeavor includes symbol work. So to to to, to use his language of symbol, every every endeavor uses theoretical work. But if the more specifically, more intrinsically symbolic or theoretical fields are dismissed as non-practical, then all of the theoretical work in the other or in the, those other fields become assumed implicit and therefore unexamined hmm that makes some sense that makes some sense well anyway michael weaver reminds us that he's a rhetorician uh as he rolls along and his signature curmudgeonly demolition of key terms in modern conversation does not disappoint in this essay uh so take a couple minutes walk us through his rhetorical critique of progressive of adjustment of happiness uh, so that we can explore for ourselves how those terms have shifted in the years since this essay, and what about his critiques still ring true? Well, uh, it won't surprise you to learn that he thinks progressive education is actually regressive, in the sense that it's built on sending us to a pre-symbolic time. Um, and it does that by treating man as a stimulus-response processor which is a, a common complaint that conservatives have about progressives in the middle of the 20th century. That it, uh, you, you see this all over Walker Percy's material, for example, that the modern world tends to think of people as, as factories for responses to stimuli, and it designs all of society around that notion. And, and if that's your conception of the human being, that it is a stimulus response processor, it makes sense that your goal would be to make well-adjusted people, people who have the appropriate responses to the appropriate stimuli and who are in general well-adjusted. Uh, the problem with that is, from Weaver's perspective, that it's not at all the nature of genius to be well-adjusted. And that, in fact, when everyone is well-adjusted, society is actually going to collapse because you need these people who are uncomfortable in their milieu in order to move society forward. And this is another way in which, quote-unquote, progressivism is regressive for him. Not only that, what what they, they, meaning the progressive educators, want is for people to be well-adjusted to some sort of socialist paradise um, in which there is no space for sacrifice, uh, which is which is a thing that Weaver sees as being fundamentally human. You know, there's there's a lot of anti-socialist stuff in here, and a lot of it feels very much like it was written in the early 1960s. Uh, 
But the, the idea that modern education treats us as stimulus response processors, that makes a lot of sense to me. And the notion that being well-adjusted is the highest goal also makes sense to me. I just think probably, well, I'll get to what I think in a few minutes. Uh, the bottom line is progressives equate happiness with adjustment. Weaver says the true geniuses of history weren't really happy that often. It's just that when they were happy, it was super intense. The irony of that is that is the that's the definition of happiness John Stuart Mill gives in utilitarianism. And Mill is largely responsible for thinking of people as stimulus response processors and also for the progressive view of education. So I'm not sure. Surely Weaver had read that book and was familiar with it. I don't know if, if he sees the irony of positing the same view of happiness as John Stuart Mill. That's interesting. I'd forgotten that about Mill. Um, yeah, I, I, again, I mean, you know, this essay, I, I, I picked it out for us to read together precisely because it makes me less comfortable than his essay specifically on rhetoric. And this section, I mean, it, it brings to me, Michael, the question that has troubled me off and on through my career in education, which is namely, you know, is there a is there a call for the exceptional person truly to be exceptional? And by that, what I mean is, you know, I, I, I think that we've got this, I don't know what to call it, an ideal is what I'll call it for now, though I might come up with a better term later, that we should teach all of our students to, you know, uh, question the dominant paradigm and to be subversive and yada, yada, yada. And I've often wondered, you know, if everybody is subversive, do you end up with, nothing there to subvert well yeah and i mean this is this has been the problem of the avant-garde in art for for a hundred years right i mean once once marcel duchamp puts the signature on the urinal where else can you go you you know i mean at, at a certain point isn't traditionalism actually radical yeah the avant-garde just becomes guard and tedious, nice. right? Because because so much of how the yeah. avant-garde gets its power is in assaulting um, the staid conventionality. But once it becomes the conventional, you can't even say, oh, it's beautiful at least. You know, Tchaikovsky may be lame, but at least it's beautiful. It's going to be hard to yeah. say that about Schoenberg. No offense, Nathan. I know you love Schoenberg. I do like Schoenberg. And, and I also wonder, and I mean, I, I think part of uh, what keeps me from thinking about this all the time, Michael, the way that you think about life as guilt all the time, uh, is that, you know, in my experience, a, a pretty sizable hunk of the GI Bill era college graduates, uh, you know, don't really revisit those questions once they get their diplomas. So, like, there's still a dominant culture to rail against. Uh, but I do wonder, I mean, you know, is there a... Is there, is there a horizon in which, you know, uh, what he's talking about here, you know, flips on its head to where, you know, if we educate enough people not to be well-adjusted, then, you know, then the malcontent simply becomes the norm. Yeah, I, it's, it's weird that he wants to build his educational system around people who are exceptions. I don't, I don't see how you're going to do that. And his example is Abraham Lincoln, right? who's educated outside the system, what would have happened to Lincoln if he, if he had had more formal education? Whether it's the Weaverian kind or the Deweyan kind. I don't know. I mean, 
wouldn't he have wouldn't he have turned out pretty good either way i think maybe maybe what weaver's concerned about is not the top 10% but the the people between 70 and 90 say more about that N- not the truly exceptional cuz the truly exceptional are always going to be truly exceptional right there's a there's a certain level of genius where it kind of doesn't matter uh what what's around them they're going to excel but then there's people who who could go either way who could either fall in with a dominant paradigm or resist it probably depending on depending on what their teachers are like i mean these are the people we teach to right these are oh sure these, sure these are the people that, we kind of take in i suspect given the the size and quality of our schools we're not getting world historical geniuses for the most part but you can take someone who's in the 75th, you know, in that, that, that level and, uh, and push them toward genius. Uh, whereas maybe if they had fallen in with, with people who were more in the stimulus response school, they wouldn't have done anything interesting. Yeah, that makes some sense. That makes some sense. I mean, David, does it, does this line of inquiry make any sense to you? Cause I mean, like I said, I've always kind of worked within the narrative that I am, you know, training people, you know, as a, a Latter-day Socrates to, you know, question the things that remain unquestioned beyond the walls of whatever institution I'm in. But um, I do sometimes wonder that whether that's a delusion. Well, one of the things that balances Socrates is Aristotle, who is the thinker who's not necessarily interested in questioning everything that his culture assumes, but instead, oh, not. instead of, instead looking very carefully at, um, what are, you know, in the, in the ethics, what are our virtues? What do we consider to be vices? What is the way that we use the language? What is the way that we illustrate or instantiate the, 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 the behaviors and the attitudes uh, the the ways of thinking that we praise and the ones that we shun, um, like he's doing careful analytical work, but careful analytical work is not necessarily intrinsically counter countercultural. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's the thing that a that a, a an only Socratic model. Um, loses uh if 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 genius if intellectual work is intrinsically countercultural then then all you're ever going to be doing is is defusing existing systems and then what's left um you know having aristotles on the other side who say well let's you know let let's show the, let's show our work let's let's see if we can theorize what we've got before we decide whether or not we need to push it over, um, well, that's I, I, I guess that's a kind of reformist conservatism versus a more radical progressivism. That makes some sense. That makes some sense. Well, David uh, Weaver's proposal for let's call it a truly progressive education uh, does start with ideas of discipline and the disciplines and the ways that those things lead to a true individuality. Uh, so once again, I mean, what is Weaver dealing with when he redefines 
discipline and disciplines and individuality. Okay, so disciplines, and I'm just going to read them. Discipline, a discipline denotes something that has the power to shape and to control in accordance with objective standards. It connotes the power to repress and discourage those impulses which interfere with the proper development of the person. So, a disciplined body is one that is developed and trained to do what its owner needs to do. This is one that we still very widely recognize and value. Um, not just in terms of at athletics, but also in terms of physical fitness and, you know, just sort of general health. Um, you know, yoga is this, um, and so forth. A disciplined mind is one that is developed and trained to think in accordance with the necessary laws of thought, and which therefore can provide its owner with true casual reading about the world, um, reason reasoning about causes. Uh, the person with a disciplined will is uh, trained to want the right thing and to reject the bad out of volition. Discipline involves the idea of the negative, and this is another proof that man does not merely un does not unfold merely naturally like a flower. He unfolds when he has been de being developed by a sound educational philosophy according to known lines of truth and error, right and wrong. So his notion of discipline assumes that the the raw material, so to speak, of the individual is is a potentiality that will go wrong or at best be underutilized if it is not cultivated in these particular ways. And he pays attention and he notes the the, the functions of body. Um, the the functions of mind and the functions of will or the 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 ethical or moral functions. So, for him, dis to 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 say discipline, to talk about education as discipline, is is to start with the presupposition that we're that we don't start in education okay. That we don't start with knowing what is in our best entrance in in, in our best interest. Um, and that while we have good, or the potential for good, the potential for excellence of varying kinds and degrees in each of us, um, that, those, that those excellences are not intrinsically there, but require, um, require fostering, require training, require cultivation and uh, construction. And that it will be hard to do, <laughs> um, and that the 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 difficulty of the disciplines is one of the things that makes them uh, often um, shunned by those who don't don't see the value in it because they don't want to endure the difficulty of it, and because they're uh, not made to endure the difficulty, right? Because nobody wants to endure the difficulty. Yeah. There's a, there's a good book, um, and it's been a few years since I read it, so I probably can't give you a whole lot of details. There's a good book by Louis Menand called The Marketplace of Ideas, which is about the shift toward electives in higher education programs. And mm. what I walked away from that book feeling 10 years ago or whenever I read it is that we really trust 18-year-olds to – pick a lot of stuff for themselves, even though presumably they're coming to a university because they don't know the things they should know. 
Right, right. That's yeah. I mean that one Weaver's argument is one of the, I think one of the main arguments for having a gen ed core, um, which is that there there are things that are fundamentally important to the intellectual growth of students that students left to themselves may not, and in some cases probably would never choose unless they had a particular career end in sight. Right. And the government, to be fair, does enforce certain gen ed requirements, but at most schools, they're so watered down and so subject to the logic of consumer choice that I don't know that it does much good. Oh, sure. This is the phenomenon, you know, about, well, I mean, this time every school year of, you know, you start to see posters for different courses appear on bulletin boards around campus, you know, trying to get the the 20 year olds to pick your course rather than another one. Yeah, by making a, an attractive poster as if that was a good way to... But yeah, I mean, I, I really would Mine recommend that attractive. man book. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly the kind of thing I think um, I think that Weaver Weaver's seeing here. Um, the, the thing is we don't want to suffer and we will necessarily have to suffer into be in order to be made into something that we are not yet. And the thing that we are not yet is better than the thing that we are. Right. It's interesting for me, David, because I've spent so much time with McIntyre's After Virtue that to see Weaver's construction of this several years before McIntyre uh, gives me one of those Harold Bloom moments where I think that Weaver must have read After Virtue. <laughs> In, in his time machine yeah yeah <laughs> maybe maybe it's a merlin situation where he is actually living backwards the time weaver nice worst oh, children's book nice. ever <laughs> in which in which richard weaver goes forward in time in order to read mcintyre oh gosh just thank God Richard Weaver didn't live uh, during the hip-hop era. Can you imagine the horrible racist things he'd have to say about hip-hop? Oh, goodness. Yeah, yeah. I mean, one would hope that if he did live during that era, then, you know, perhaps his education would have been different. But it, it does raise uh, specters. Let, let's assume that he lives through the intervening years and can learn things in the process. And not one just, can hope. One can hope. Not just get get, get plucked straight out of the fifties and drop like. <laughs> I think you're just describing Alan Bloom. Nice. <laughs> well, anyway, Michael, uh, you and I, uh, you know, on the show and off, have discussed on a number of occasions our our resonance with and our concerns over alarmism uh, in some conservative writers' works, uh, and especially on their Twitter feeds. And you might get to that or not. Uh, this strikes me as an essay flavored with klaxons. Uh, you know, we're under attack, the sirens are going. What parts of Weaver's alarmism read as dated now, and which ones have followed us through and beyond the Cold War? Well, I, I think the, the really evergreen piece here is his concern with this particular sort of education. And if anything, we live, we live in a era of educational chaos even more now than we did in 1965 
no one knows what education is supposed to do. And because no one knows what education is supposed to do, it ends up being standardized and commodified. And I, I mean, he, I think he is pointing to some things that are still an issue and are actually more of an issue than they ever were. So that part is evergreen. But here's this weird concern, weird for us in 2019, less weird for him in 1963, that that liberal education or progressive education, because liberal education means something different for him, progressive education is preparing students for some sort of socialist dystopia. And maybe it was, but I would say he should be much more concerned that it's preparing students to be perfect consumers, uh, which it absolutely is, uh, given what we just said about consumer choice, even in the university. So I think, I think if you look at, at, at what education actually pushes students towards in, in this society, I don't think it's toward life in some sort of uh, totalitarian state. I think it's toward, you, you ask students why they're in college and what do they tell you? I want to get a job. Well, why do you want to get a job? I want to make money. I want to live a lifestyle that is commiserate with the, the, uh, my, my goals for whatever. You know what I mean? It's, it's all pushing them toward consumerism. And, and it's a, a noble consumerism in some cases. or it's, It has the language of nobility attached to it. I want to make the world a better place. But, I want to provide for my family. Right. But ultimately, I would say that's what we're pushing toward. And maybe I would have more sympathy for that if he, instead of talking about socialism, he talked about what Gabriel Marcel calls mass society, uh, which is perfectly figured by both the USSR on the communist side and by the United States on the capitalist side. Um, both of those are mass societies in the sense that the individual doesn't really matter. What what matters is your peace in the machine. And I think if you pushed Weaver on that, he would probably agree. But he doesn't. He doesn't seem to take note of consumerism as a danger at all. Even though I think that's probably what's pushing uh, American education much sort much more so than the the socialist leanings of some of your Ed theorists. Right. We also live 30 years post-Cold War, so... Yeah, easy for that's us easier. to say. <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, and that's why, you know, Neil Postman resonates with us in a way that, you know, probably, again, assuming time travel, wouldn't have for Weaver, right? But, I mean, we should we should absolutely be concerned with the concrete things he's talking about. I think he just misidentifies their source. Yeah. It, it's, it's in consumerism's best interest for you to be a stimulus response processor too, because then all the advertisers have to do is uh, poke you in the right way and uh, out comes your money, you know? Yeah. And, you know, one of the most powerful advertising engines uh, is precisely the electoral system. Hmm. This is reminding me of, uh, C.S. Lewis's uh, introduction to Athanasius on the Incarnation of the Word, the essay that often gets anthologized as On the Reading of Old Books. And he talks about the blind spots of, of eras, and he says that there, um, I don't have the exact quote in front of me, but he says that there are things in our own time um, that are points of unassumed agreement or, or uh, unargued agreement between figures that we think of as completely opposite. And so, you know, uh, 
you know, Hitler and, and there are things that Hitler and Churchill are completely agreed about or, or whatever. And so he's got this, you know, this, 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 this idea. And that, that point that, um, the, the, was it was it you, Michael, that referenced the idea of mass culture? Ma- yeah, well, I said mass society, which is Gabriel Marcel's Yeah, mass Marcel's society. Term. Mass society. Um, I wonder if that that mass society idea is identifying the thing that what becomes um, the commercial consumerist society of post-war America in opposition to the mass society of the the communist or, you know, the communist or socialist or Marxist state, whatever, that, that, that might be one of those things that, you know, as we get further, further out, we can kind of see that this is actually a danger inherent in both of those systems. And it wasn't necessarily something particular to either of those forms of economics, but rather a danger that crops out um, in multiple kinds of systems yeah. For reasons that are common to systems. Well, and I mean, ultimately, maybe what Weaver would say is socialism is a kind of liberalism. Right? I mean, socialism, Marxism works like democracy works. It just goes off in a different direction after a certain point. So I think the things mm-hmm. the things he's concerned in with socialism, maybe he's right to be concerned. I don't know. I'm probably more ironic about socialism than he is. But he should definitely also be concerned with them as they manifest in in the system that produces him. I, I, I just keep thinking about poor Martin Heidegger. And and Heidegger legitimately believed that Nazi Germany was going to forge the uh the the benevolent third way between Soviet communism and American consumerism. And, and maybe that's a lesson for those of us who want that kind of third way, that, that that search can very easily end in a kind of corrupt, mythological, damaging conservatism. But it's really hard to put yourself in his position and look at what the Soviet Union was up to in 1925 and what the United States was up to in 1925 and and to say a pox on both your houses, even if even if he was, you know, outrageously foolish, not to see, not to see Nazi Germany as just another manifestation of it. He he identifies it as a as a problem with tech, technologism, that that that's Heidegger. what they or or what the French call technique, um, which is goes beyond technology and into an entire way of seeing the world. That that's what all these things have in common. And certainly that would fit with the with Weaver's distrust of pragmatism, etc. The like industrialization is that is that what you mean? It's seeing, and again, I don't know how to do this without just diving into Gabriel Marcel, but it's seeing everything as a problem to be solved. Okay. As opposed so, to no ice ethics. What's that? If you got a problem, you all solve it. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And and what I, I don't know that we're ever going to get to do this episode because I was translating the essay into French, but the the French version I had was missing several pages, so we may never talk about it. I don't know. Um, Gabriel Marcel opposes the the problem to the mystery, and I, it it seems to me that maybe that's what the sort of education 
Weaver is talking about could result in. It's an education in mystery. It's it's not supposed to make us feel at home in the world, well adjusted. It's supposed to put us put us in contact with something that is beyond the world. But Weaver doesn't go that far. Uh, and I'm probably just reading Marcel into it because I like him more than I like Weaver. Right. Well, Michael, not I mean, one thing though. that I often tell my students is that uh, if we become so fixated on finding the answers, we never get troubled by the possibility that there might, there might be questions we haven't posed yet. Right. Yeah. Is that, is that related to what you're talking about? Yeah, I think so. I think so. That, that a mystery is, is something you're involved in. It's not something you stand back and solve. You're the mystery. And, and the, the great mystery of the world is connected to you. Hmm. So, so like Marcel says, there's no point in talking about um, the problem of evil because evil's not a problem. You're, you're too involved with it for it to be a problem. <laughs> yeah, gosh, I, I feel like I get into that conversation every time I interview a process thinker on profile. Yeah, I, I, uh, I was thinking about, about your interview with that. What, what was his name? Or, uh, Tom Ord, or, or yeah, that, that's Fuller. the one because he 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 took real issue with the notion that it's a mystery. But oh yeah yeah yeah, and I mean his most recent book basically says I'm going to solve the problem of evil. Yeah, and and see, I I think that that is an example of what the French call technique. I think I may have gone into technique, maybe not, with in my interview with Craig Gay, but he gives a really good explanation of it at the end of his book, uh, Modern Technology. And the human future? Is that what it's called? Something like that. Whatever, yeah, that sounds right. Whatever that book I interviewed right. him about. But and another good place to go for that is Jacques Ellul's Technological Society. But he doesn't ever yeah, define yeah. technique. He just uses the word. But but technique is this mindset. And I, I think ultimately that's what Weaver is taking issue with. He's taking issue with technique, not necessarily with socialism as such. Okay. Is, it, is it something that's related uh, he because he talks about materialism as something that is also stultifying um a kind of strict materialism in this in the sense that it rules out of bounds um areas of inquiry and areas of investigation and knowledge because they're not things that are um physically tangible and measurable yeah, I think um, those two things are certainly connected. Okay. Well, David, we know that Weaver is a Plato reader, uh, so he's got to know what he's doing, elevating freedom and individuality as he does towards the end of this essay. He is running straight at Socrates' takedown of democracy towards the end of Republic. So how does he reframe freedom, individuality, and to what extent do you think would Plato continue to be nervous about his elevation of the individual and the individual's freedom. Okay, you're gonna have to. Um, you're you you you're you're the Plato guy here, so I'm gonna give my uh, my summation of Socrates talking about democracy, and then uh, and then you fill in the gaps there, and then we will lateral into Weaver. Um, so there's a chunk of Republic, uh, Republic, I think, Book 8, in which Socrates is walking through sort of li- uh, phases in the, in, in, in the life cycle of a society, something like that. And 
and phases is a very uh, polite way to say decline. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so after oligarchy comes democracy, which uh, he sees, uh, for, for him, democracy is, is what happens when the masses rise up um, out of uh, a recognition of the, the weakness and unworthiness of the powerful few. Um, uh, the, that the, the many rise up and suppress them, whether by wiping them out or by chasing them out of town. And now, and now the many rule themselves. And one of the characteristics uh, of the, of the different characteristics of democracy, um, he talks about uh, people in a democratic state pretty much doing whatever they want because no one is the boss of them. I'm, I'm paraphrasing. Um, uh, uh, he talks about uh, the life of liberty and equality being motley and manifold and epitome of the lives of the many. Uh, he answers to the state which we have described as fair and spangled. So uh, th this is a... Uh, a society in which um, everybody pursues his own way and everything's different and uh, in that and and they 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 see their strength in the fact that that everyone is free to sort of do his own his or her own thing um, but presumably still his because we're talking about Socrates um, but this is a problem uh, this is a problem because ultimately, um, the good, uh, the good is what is, is what should be pursued. And in democracy, um, everyone doing their own thing isn't actually, um, pursuing the good. They're just sort of left in their own, you know, varied ignorances. Um, so yeah, democracy, democracy rises up when it sees the the intrinsic um, lie and weakness of oligarchy but it doesn't have any real excellence to replace it with um, so what would you augment that with uh, just the example that I bring to my students I say you know let's say that you're uh, you know being wheeled down the hallway to surgery and you know you're talking to the surgeon and you say, all right, you know, uh, when did you decide you were going to be a surgeon? And she says, well, earlier this week. And you say, right. uh, well, who taught you to be a surgeon? And she says, well, I did. And you say, and who licensed you <laughs> to do surgery? And she says, I did. I mean, I'm, I'm off that table. <laughs> you know, uh, and then this is, you know, Socrates' uh, objection to democracy, right? I mean, if you simply do what it is that you see fit to do uh, when you see fit to do it, uh, you lose, I mean, what Weaver was talking about earlier with discipline, right? Uh, there are certain things that are just too important to uh, leave to, you know, free choice. Uh, sometimes you need communities that actually regulate those things. Uh, so, I mean, you know, this is, like I said, you know, why I found Weaver's elevation of, you know, the individual and of freedom interesting at the end I, I i think that he is once again being a rhetorician and reframing these terms in a way that uh, you know plato's socrates would probably say all right uh what you're defining here as individuality and freedom 
is more truthfully called something else. Uh, but uh, let, let's go there, David. I mean, keep keep yeah. rolling on into Weaver. Uh, okay, so Weaver is a Platonist from way back, right? He's he's um, you know he's Professor Diggory, you know, asking what what they teach the kids these days. Don't they keep don't don't they teach them Plato? Um, so I I think. This is what what he's presenting here is individuality, um, and freedom is not necessarily. Um, it's it's not. I don't think he's exact precisely contradicting what Socrates is talking about, because he talks about the the freedom in there being room within education for individuals to to vary from. Um, the kind of rote standard method and and in the and pursue um paths of development that are suited to their own particular capacities of excellence um i need to the passage where he talks about this he he has several uh several ways of saying what this what this variety looks like yeah here we go variations appearing in these forms do not mean simply that one man is right and another is wrong they mean that the persons in question are responding according to their different powers to apprehend an order of reality in this kind of perception some persons are fast movers others are slow but deep some have to see things concretely Others are more successful in working out ideas and principles. Some people are profoundly sensitive to place. Others would do about the same kind of thinking anywhere. Some do their best work while feeling a sense of security. Others require excitement and, stim and stimulus of uncertainty to draw forth their best efforts. And such a list of differences could be extended almost indefinitely. So his, his idea is that there are within individuals these differing and varied capacities and potentialities um that a one-size-fits-all kind of industrial model that's ha has a very low notion of what education is meant to be suiting people for adjusting them to reality however however that's construed and then um is not asking much of individuals in terms of discipline that 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 form of education is going to leave untapped and undeveloped all of these different particular ways in which individuals are distinctively talented. But he sees these not as, um, not as contradictory things, but as, as, as harmonious, um, harmonious potentialities that when developed, um, that each, each person, uh, each person is individually related toward the source of ethical impulse and should be allowed to express his special capacity for that relation. So they're not everyone doing what it, what is right in their own eyes and some kind of anarchy. Rather, education is presenting them, education in this, in this idea, is giving them a kind of common ground and common field in which they can develop distinctively, but also still be in a kind of harmonious and productive conversation with one another um and if you look back at plato well 
in the Republic, all of these thought experiments about different governments and, and models of society are all Plato exploring politics in order to come back and talk about what is the proper order of a will, the, the, the proper state of a well-ordered soul. Right, right. And in that case, it seems, it seems to me at least, that Weaver's notion of individuality is something like creating a place, uh, creating a possibility for, pe- for individuals to pursue that, that excellence of well-ordered soul that um that ultimately the republic is interested in um but he's also recognizing which is which is something that socrates doesn't necessarily have the instinct for um he see he sees the fact that humans uh that individuals have all of these differences as a real strength because he sees humanity as a kind of whole that is oriented towards real real universal goods um you know he believes we've got souls he believes that good is real he believes that right and wrong are like actual things and so um unleashing the ways in which we are varied doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to end up in his view with a cacophony or um, a series of non-coterminous solipsistic universes in which everyone is sort of their own god dictating their own reality and demanding everyone else kowtow. Um, Twitter. Twitter, basically. <laughs> I mean, a- am I reading him right or am I trying to synthesize this too hard? No, I mean, I, I think you have to do some synthetic work because, again, he is... Uh, taking things, and I'm, I'm using Kenneth Burke's formula here, that are normally in opposition, and he's turning them into appositions. And, uh, you know, you have to do something with that. That makes sense. Well, Michael, I, I know that you've got uh, places to be and people to see, so I want to start heading for the door here. In this essay, Weaver mentions Christianity obliquely when he doesn't mention it. And usually he mentions it alongside other intellectual traditions like Greek philosophy. So as you see things, Michael, what kinds of things does this vision for education promise for Christians thinking about education? And where must Christians depart from Weaver's aspiration here? Well, I think the big issue is toward the end, he starts talking about um, individuality as a goal must be explained by men's inclinations toward the good. And he comes up with this very pluralistic view of what the good is. So people disagree about it, but they all believe they're headed towards it. And that's what we need to foster. That's the, that's the part of this essay that's the biggest issue for me. I think it's obvious that an education that has a meaningful conception of the good to aim at is better than one that's just about preparing students for the workplace. I, I would never argue otherwise. But it... it Christians can't be satisfied that students are being aimed at some vague notion of the good 
we need to aim our students at the particularly Christian notion of the good, which indeed is quite different from the classical Greek version. This is this is one of my discomforts with Christian classical education. I, I'm in generally I'm for it, but I wonder if sometimes there's not a conflation of Western culture and Christianity, uh, a conflation that maybe I've made in the past. Uh, but whatever good we're aiming at has to be specifically Christian, or else you know what are we doing? Right. I mean, you know the and you know Michael, you and I talked about this when uh, we read through. Uh, John Macquarie's theology a few years ago that his his vision of Christian ethics was a little bit too um, one size fits all for my taste. There was no sense that uh, you know these men were coming here to turn the world upside down, uh, and I and I, I get the same impression here from Weaver. Yeah, and I don't even know. Do we know what Weaver's religious positions were? He was a Presbyterian uh, by church membership. Interesting. And I mean, I think there's a way to look at the Greek conception of the good and kind of critique it from a Christian viewpoint. I mean, obviously, that's what Thomas Aquinas is doing in much of the Summa Theologica. But until that happens, I I worry about this pluralistic good. But then again, I mean, he's talking about public schools and public schools aren't, you know, I, I don't want them necessarily to be oriented toward the Christian conception of good. I mean, maybe this is the problem with ordering your school toward a conception of the good at all. I mean, maybe this is, you, you, you live in a liberal society with a quote-unquote free marketplace of ideas. Maybe, I mean, maybe there's no way to not have an educational system that falls into kind of stand, standardized consumerist visions of the good. Although Weaver was a professor at University of Chicago, which by official affiliation is a Baptist school, so... It seems like uh, he he should come away a little bit more particular in his aims. Yeah, but I mean, how Baptist? <laughs> how Baptist was University of Chicago in the fifties? Yeah, point taken. Point. Uh, yeah, it's, I, I had my fingers crossed when I said that. You're right. I was thinking mostly about secondary public schools. Okay, that makes some sense. Well, guys, I am going to try to respect Michael's time here and go ahead and wrap us up. Uh, listeners, thank you for uh, listening in with us. And, of course, uh, email us uh, if you got any questions. Uh, Michael, what is uh, up for next week? Kind of a weird topic. I haven't yet decided what I'm going to call it. But we're going to be reading about walking through cities. So we're going to read Edgar Allan Poe's short story, The Man of the Crowd. We're going to read a little bit of... Charles Baudelaire's The Painter of Modern Life. We're going to read a little bit of uh, one of Walter Benjamin's essays on Baudelaire. And then we're going to read an essay by Virginia Woolf called Street Haunting. And we're going to try to figure out what's so appealing or unappealing about walking through cities where there's a large number of people. And for me, it's going to be unappealing. I'm just going to predict. But uh, listeners, until then... Uh, you can find us at christianhumanist.org. You can comment on our Facebook page. You can email us at thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. Uh, Christian Humanist Podcast is part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Our intern is Ellen Peterson. And I'm Nathan Gilmore in behalf of David Grubbs and Michael Farmer saying, let your sins be strong, let your faith be stronger.